Just this past October, our wonderful sponsor, the Affordable Art Fair, celebrated their 20th anniversary in style, back where it all began in Battersea Park in London. And wow, what a selection of artworks they had on view, from prints, paintings, sculptures and ceramics, and a lot of women, I may add. If you missed out on this year's edition, or like me, are still dreaming about that perfect artwork that got away, then do not worry. Head online to browse the same hand-picked selection of emerging and established living artists as you'd find at the fair. Whether you're looking to purchase your very first piece or perhaps it's that last blank spot on your walls, there's a wealth of advice and inspiration on everything from interior design to art buying trends to help you make that all-important art buying decision. Discover the joy of collecting art on affordableartfair.com and thank you to our sponsor, the Affordable Art Fair, for making this podcast possible. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015 which celebrates female artists on a daily basis ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my very special guest today is Amy Buhussain, the granddaughter of the absolutely exceptional artist, surrealist, war photographer, gourmet cook and 20th century artistic giant, Lee Miller. And I'm so honoured to be talking with Amy today on the site of Miller's former home, Farley's Farm in Sussex, an organisation Amy is co-director of, along with her father, Anthony Penrose, where they manage the Lee Miller archives, the Penrose collection, and where there is a gallery featuring the likes of Picasso's and Moreau, all of which you are welcome to visit. Amy is one of the people in the world who has the most knowledge of Lee Miller having worked on numerous exhibitions at the likes of the V&A and Imperial War Museum, lectured widely on her and worked extensively with her material for over 20 years. Recent publications include her biographical recipe book, Lee Miller, A Life with Food, Friends and Recipes, more on that later, and more recently the essay Lee Miller and the Mermaid, written for the exhibition catalogue Photographer Lee Miller, The Liberation of Denmark, May 1945, which was presented at the Museum of National History at the Friedrichsburg in 2018. I was so lucky to have worked with Amy and her wonderful family last year when they loaned us some very brilliant photographs for an exhibition I curated at TJ Bolting, the same show that featured our previous guest, Juno Calypso, whom I paired with Lee. Welcome, Amy. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. So when the exhibition featuring Lee Miller was up in 2018, so many people said they just didn't realise that she was such a pioneering photographer, surrealist and war correspondent because sadly, and like so many other female artists, she had often been cast in the shadow of Man Ray as his assistant and his muse. But something that struck me the most, in addition to hearing that she was a woman who refused to accept the inequalities of her time, was actually, and I learnt this at Farley's, was how your father grew up not really knowing the extensiveness of his mother's career. Just before we get into who she was and her phenomenal career, can you just tell us a bit about how your family rediscovered Lee Miller? 
Well, actually, it was because I was born. And my mum wanted to see some baby pictures of my dad. And my granddad, Roland Penrose, said to my mum, well, I think there might be some pictures in the attic. Go have a look up there. And um, she went up and she found loads of boxes. And she rummaged around in them. She didn't find any baby pictures. Was, am I right in thinking Lee had already died by this point? Yeah, so I was born just three months before Lee died. So we were kind of... We met, but it's really frustrating because we never really got to chat. There's pictures of her holding me as a baby. So, yeah, it was literally just not long after she died that my mum was wanting to compare me with my dad. And so she went up and she came back, not with baby pictures, but with contact sheets and manuscripts. And it's actually the contact sheets and manuscripts that related to the first combat battle that Lee covered, which is in the Siege of St. Marlowe. And it was from that point onwards, she said to him, I think you need to read this. And he says that he just read it. And then he had to sit down on the stairs and he had to read it again. Because he couldn't believe that the woman he knew, who was a very different Lee Miller, is the person that had written and taken those pictures. I mean, if you think about it, when my dad was born, he was born at the worst time in her life. She'd just come back from the war. And she was really struggling with a lot of demons in her head. She had a lot of mental problems to cope with and to learn to live with. And so the Lee Miller he knew was struggling with a lot of darkness. And how many kind of contact sheets and negatives are we talking here? When we finished counting, (laughs) there's about 20,000 original photographs and about 60,000 negatives and then about 20,000 pages of original manuscripts, notebooks, letters. And then there's ephemera too. There's like her, we have her army uniform. Um, So that was just sitting in the attic this entire time? Yeah. Oh my goodness. And how did you take action? Well, it was my dad, really. And he was just completely gripped. He wanted to know who his mum really was. He knew who this Lee Miller really was. And he and my mum just started archiving. So Lee Miller was born in Poughkeepsie in New York in 1907. Yep. And she was the middle child of two brothers. Can you start by telling me a bit about what Lee Miller was like as a child? She was quite the tomboy. I think you can safely say that. She was incredibly intelligent. Um, She got really good reports at primary school. We have a couple. And she was very competitive as well with her older brother, John. Her dad was an engineer and... To his credit, he never treated her differently. She and the two brothers were constantly being shown how to make stuff. He'd encourage them to make crazy go-karts. She was the one that was always bonkers enough to try it out first, but he would encourage them to do it. And like he gave her a chemistry set when she was quite young. And I think that gave her a really good start in life, not being treated differently. And what was her childhood like? Was it happy? I think mostly it was. Um, unfortunately, when when she was seven, her mum was having... I, we'll never know really what her mum's problem was, but her, in the family it's always been said she was having um, a nervous breakdown. Mm. And so Lee was sent away while mum was trying to sort herself out. Lee was sent to stay with friends of the family. And while she was staying with them, she unfortunately was, was raped... Um, not by them, 
but uh, it was pretty horrific. She also um, contracted an STD, gonorrhea. Oh my god! And how old was she at this point? Seven. And so, and this is also um, a good seven years before penicillin is invented. Yeah. So she's come. She comes home, and her mom is still suffering with her mental difficulties so you can imagine as a small child you're there with your mom and you're she's there physically but she's not able to be there mentally for you and all you really need is your mom wow and how do you think this kind of changed her as a child do you think this gave her this kind of independence in a way i think it gave her a lot of things i mean her mom was a nurse so her mom was the one that had to inflict very regular very painful treatments on her and um that gave her a very difficult relationship with her mum. Mm. She was also told that she wasn't allowed to talk about it wow. because in those days <sighs> the victim was often viewed as deserving it and it would have tarred her. The family had to keep it secret to protect her. So she very quickly became quite intolerant of sham and, and lies. And I think that you can see that right through the rest of her life, particularly in, during the war. When she sees something is not right, she calls it out. Wow. What was her relationship like with her father? Because am I right in thinking that he was the one who kind of introduced her to photography? He did. Yeah, he was an amateur photographer. And it's a bit weird because he photographed her naked. And actually, he even photographed her naked after she was married to her first husband. But... Uh, you know, and there's a lot of them, but there's not one of them that I've seen, like when she's in her teens or older, where she looks uncomfortable. Yeah. And I know that they were very close because of, from talking to people when he used to come here all the time, she used to go see him all the time. Um, she wrote to him, you know, she wrote, in fact, in later years during the war and stuff, she'd write to mother and dad. And he was like, mother was always like she was separated from her mom. And like, maybe she, I felt, I always thought that she was maybe angry still with her mom. Definitely. So was she exposed to much art as a child? Do you think she was kind of interested in pursuing photography at an early age? Or was it something that no. kind of came to her much later? So there's a brilliant quote, actually, that <laughs> she did in a, an interview with Mario Amaya, where she said that she wanted to study art. Yeah. So she, like, she went off to Italy and saw all the works by the great masters, and she realised that they'd done it all. So she thought, oh, I'll go for photography instead. <laughs> well, she is the great master now, which is fantastic. She totally achieved yeah, that dream. Yeah, I love that you call her a giant. I think that's pretty awesome. Well, it's so appropriate. She is, absolutely. <laughs> so by the age of 19, she was already teaching light and set design at the likes of Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, having studied theatre set design. How did she then move away from this and become known to be kind of one of the greatest models? Because that was kind of her first real career, right? Yeah, and I think it's really interesting, actually. And I did look at this for this, the Lee Miller book that I've just brought out. Um, because there is this really cool myth about how she was walking down the street one day and she was daydreaming and um, she walks into the path of a truck and the guy that saves her, and who, who promptly she faints into his <laughs> arms of, is Condé Nast, the owner of Vogue and Vanity Fair. And that, as far as I know, did actually happen. And she's very happy to attribute it to being luck that got her to being a model. But when you look at the people that she knew and the circles she was moving in, she already knew some of the top photographers of the time, like Edward Steichen. And I think 
as a career, she was probably already thinking about it. Do you think she, being exposed to all these photographers and being a model, do you think that kind of prompted her to then actually pursue photography? Totally. Mm. I mean, in those days, setting up a, a studio photography was so boring. Mm. I would have hated it. <laughs> I mean, I'll never be a model, but I would have hated to have been a model in those days because it took them so long to set up the cameras and the lighting. And literally, you would, for somebody as bright and intelligent as she was, I could imagine it as being like mind numbingly boring. Mm. And what are you going to do if you've got that kind of inquiring brain? When the photographer's setting stuff up, you're going to ask him what he's doing. Yeah. And if you've already got that interest from your dad, who's an amateur photographer, mm. then it just makes sense. And did she last long as a model? No. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, that's more uh, because she posed for some pictures for Steich and he photographed her a lot. But the picture was given to an agency and it ended up being bought by the big company Kimberly Clark to advertise Kotex women's sanitary products like Tampax Mm. and it was used kind of virtually full page and you're talking about late 1920s American society this was seriously taboo and actually this was the first time ever in America that any woman had had her likeness associated with a woman's product like this Mm. so this was quite groundbreaking for Kotex in the first place to do this I mean it's quite cool that they did it Mm. Um, but the knock-on effect was that it meant because it was so taboo that nobody wanted the Kotex girl modelling their posh frocks anymore. So she, it kind of killed her American modelling career. I doubt she would have minded, though. No, <laughs> totally no. I mean, she'd, already, she'd studied, like you said before, she'd studied set design and lighting in Paris. Her dad had literally had to drag her back to America. She loved it so much. So she knew Paris was an amazing place and really happening in the art scene. Mm. So to have this excuse, like, oh, I can't model anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Guess you'll have to go. I guess I'll have to go back to Paris. And funnily enough, Steichen knew Man Ray and wrote a letter of introduction for her to him so that she could go. She didn't go straight to Man Ray. She first went to Italy. She'd got a bit of a job from Vogue photographing fashion accessories in Italian And art. was this around 1928, 1928, 1929? 28. Okay. And then by 29, she's in Paris and kind of telling Man Ray that she was going to be his student. So what happened when she was in Paris? What kind of jobs did she end up doing? Well, she did start off working as his assistant. Mm. Um, but she also did have, um, she had a job working in French folk. I mean, she came from like a working family. She knew that she had to pay the bills and she had to make her own way. She was very much determined to forge her own path. So she works there. She also works um, in a hospital photographing surgeries for their operations and mm. things like that. By the end of the first year, she had her own studio in Paris too. Wow, and was that kind of a year after working for Man Ray? What, did, what kind of things did she do with Man Ray? Uh, mostly most of his photography. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, he taught her the art yeah. of photography. You can't take that away from him. And he really introduced her to surrealism. Mm. He's the one that made her fall in love with it. Do you think that's why she went to Paris, because of surrealism? I don't know. We don't know if she knew about surrealism at that point. 
she certainly lived like one before she got there. But we only know that she found out about it properly when she met Man Ray. So, so many people are unaware that Lee kind of accidentally discovered um, solarization, which is a technique that Man Ray has famously been associated with inventing that involves kind of exposing a partially developed photograph to light that creates halo effects. How did this come about? Because Lee was really the one who kind of accidentally discovered this. Well, if you're going to be a complete total geek... <laughs> which we are, uh, about photography, neither of them invented it. It was actually already invented, and it's called the Sabatier effect. And it had been kind of forgotten. And did she know about it at all? No, but she rediscovered it. And that was when she was working in the darkroom and a rat or something went over her. She says a rat or something went over her foot and she was fixing some negatives. She turned on the light at the wrong moment. Um, in the process, which in in the dark room, there's a certain part of the process where you have to be in complete darkness. When she realised her mistake, turned the light back off again, finished processing the negatives, and she could finally look at them, she noticed that it had this reversal effect. Mm. So bits that should have been white or clear had turned black, and given it this the portrait subjects this little black outline like someone would take a black marker and draw around the edge of the and she was like actually this is quite cool and so she showed it to man ray oh, so he wasn't in the dark room at the same time well i don't there's conflicting okay. stories about whether he was there or not we do know that she discovered it there's some reports that say he was in the dark room at the same time but she was definitely the one that was doing it and so when they were exhibiting, would they exhibit Man Ray and Lee Miller or would they kind of single out each other's artworks or would Man Ray take a lot of the credit? I think, well, the two of them worked on the technique together. They turned it into a science project mm. to try and work out how long you expose it for and when you turn the light on and off. Because, of course, she'd done it by accident, so she didn't know when you had to do it. And then he actually went on to use it in yeah. their work. It's just that he's the one that is known for it and yeah. she's kind of been written out Which is in a lot of cases. I mean, there's people that have tried to put her back and we're still trying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm interested to know as well what her work was like at this time because as the objectification of female bodies is a theme that kind of runs throughout Miller's work from the photographs of the severed breasts that she creates in 1929 to the kind of news that she was making at the time of Man Ray, why was she interested in exploring this kind of objectification of women's bodies in particular? I think she was very much aware of the way that men looked at women mm. as a very beautiful beautiful and intelligent woman herself I think she felt that she got frustrated sometimes because she was looked at just for her physical appearance and not appreciated for her brain mm. and that's what a lot of the male artists were doing at the time was taking pictures of muses and chopping their bodies up and turning them into artworks or, or whatever well I mean she's famously kind of uh, immortalizes lips as well in Man Ray's work that's yeah. for sure or her eye yeah or her eye <laughs> How do, you, how do you think she would have liked being a Well, she also had her breast turned into a champagne glass as well. Not by him. No. Yeah. But it's so, That's you know, cool. all sorts, all, all bits of her body have been. <laughs> but it happened to a, a lot of the other, the other women that were in that circle too. And was she exhibiting widely at this point, like under the name of Lee Miller? Um, she was more being published. Okay. Um, like there's some of her self-portraits um, in American Vogue. Um, and The Severed Breast was never published in her lifetime, as far as I know. How did that come about? So this, for our listeners, this is a severed breast that is on a plate, and it's kind of extremely 
banal and surreal and uh, i mean why it why takes a while to it? work out what it is yeah. actually because it's black and white i mean where does she even get this from well it was from her job photographing surgeries and she'd finished photographing a radical mastectomy and she asked the surgeon if she could keep the one of the breasts <laughs> and she carried it across paris to vogue studio french vogue studio which she already had access to and set up this table it's even got like a little napkin underneath it and then a knife and fork, a place setting with the breast in the middle of the plate. Oh, my God. And she got off two shots before Hoynick and Yune, who's the studio boss, found out what she was doing, chucked her and the breast out. <laughs> and and that, was, that was it. But it is very much like, yeah, you like our bodies, you mm. like our breasts, you want to touch them and objectify them here. Have one on a plate. Oh, my God. She was just so ahead of her time. But yeah. also she was so successfully commercially. So in 19, fast forward to 1932, yeah. um, she went back to New York, bearing in mind the kind of Great Depression and set up her own studio. Why did she end up leaving Paris and then going to New York at that time? Lots of reasons. Man Ray was quite um, controlling in a way. Not controlling. I'd say possessive of mm. her. We have some crazy letters where... And, like, I mean, she was totally into the Surrealist Manifesto. You know, she was into the political side of things. She was in... Uh, and she was into the way they created different types of art because she also kind of... Um, did image true found images as well like they did found objects and was she friends with many of the other kind of female like Dora Maar etc around that time yeah I, mean, I think it's really quite funny because people first of all forget she had her own studio in Paris and was working commercially by herself and they were always like oh yes and those that do know were like yes it was just down the road from Man Ray but it was also just down the road from Dora Maar who she knew and um, you know we don't have a huge amount of information about the closeness of their friendship, but we do know that they knew each other. So in 1932, when she does set up the New York studio, mm. um, how does that come about? It's really interesting, actually, because for a long time, we thought that she just ran away from Man Ray because he was <laughs> just being a little bit too intense. <laughs> but she had been planning it for a while. Oh, really? So it probably was him, but she had and been plotting to leave for quite a while. She'd lined herself up with some work with American Vogue. She'd also got herself a dealer, uh, like a gallery dealer, Julian Levy, and she'd been exhibiting in Paris, and I think she met him through that, and who'd given her, offered her a show in December that year. And um, not only that, but she'd kind of whipped up a few of her mates in New York to help her get this publicity storm going. And actually, there's a press cutting that predates her actually even leaving Man Ray that announces her studio. What's really impressive about it is when you read the press cuttings, because there's quite a few, you can tell that she really knows how to sell herself by now. And she pitches it at the right level too she pitches it as like lee miller and this notorious woman who takes weird and wonderful pictures and she knows she's got to appeal to the ones that have got money because yeah. normal people in a depression are saving their pennies to pay you know to pay their bills and to feed their children whereas she needs to appeal to the society women who want interesting pictures to talk about with their friends but it's so crazy that she was so successful as well because is it 
you know, her name is also androgynous. Yeah. So I'm sure there were lots of instances where people thought she was a man and then it was kind of too late. Yeah. To, um, oh, totally. <laughs> and, and that was brilliant. But she had enough sass and wit about her that when she turned up for the job and they were like, hmm, we thought you were a man, <laughs> um, that she'd still keep the, keep the work most of the time. And she's also a 25-year-old woman, which is also mad i mean she's achieving so much because like this sort of determination that she has clearly her whole life as well she clearly seems as a kind of very strong character who never let anything kind of get in the way from her and definitely to me seems like a woman who's far beyond her time i mean if she's even got a dealer everything and i've read that she once said it seems to me that women have a better chance at success in photography than men women are quicker and more adaptable. And I think they have an intuition that helps them get personalities more quickly. And that just makes me so happy. I know, it's brilliant. She said that in one of the New York articles where she's promoting herself as a photographer in her studio. Where do you think she got this determination from in her life? Was she always this fierce and brilliant? I don't know. I do think that she was very driven mm. and actually... And there's this like underlying little bit of competitiveness about oh, yes, with, uh, with yeah. her older brother, John, because <laughs> he was an incredibly successful engineer aviator. You know, he flew some of the really amazing early aeroplanes and things and test piloted them. So she's got him as the bar to keep kind of proving itself against. It sounds like she constantly kind of wants to be one yeah. up from him. Oh, or something. totally. <laughs> they, and they were like, it was the both ways. She died already. But I remember our first show of Lee's work in Washington at the Corcoran Gallery, which is in the 90s. I was still a kid. And John, her brother, older brother, was still alive. And he still lived in Poughkeepsie. Wow. And my mum and dad were like, John might be coming to the show. But he didn't in the end because he decided she was getting too much attention. <gasps> no. Oh, my God. Really, like, take it to the grave kind of stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in 1934, she then left America for Egypt. I mean, this is a kind of total redirection because there she doesn't really go for work. She kind of goes for love. I mean, what? I mean, this is a total change in her career. Why does she kind of want to give everything up and go to Egypt? I think... Although she was an amazing, like, career lady, I think she found the day-to-day humdrum of running your own studio in this really competitive time in the Depression. The day-to-day bit was a, yeah. a bit... After a while, it's not fun. Yeah. If you're the boss lady. <laughs> which she is. <laughs> yeah, which she was. And I think suddenly this amazing guy who she'd already known from Paris comes and is hugely romantic and finds her and offers her adventures in this wonderfully mystical foreign place. And, yeah, he risks her off her feet. And was she doing much photography at this point or was she really just kind of living as a lady of leisure? In Egypt? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't expected, the New York thing, because she really just dumped her... She'd conned her little brother, Eric, (laughs) into being her studio assistant in New York. She'd designed the lighting for her New York studio as well. I forgot to say that. They wired the whole thing. Oh, my God. Together. I mean, it just... Anyway, Aziz Eloibé turns up New York and um, proposes to her and they go off to the registry office and get married. I mean, she's there for a while, but one of my favourite works in this time. And actually, you can tell that she's kind of this restless woman because she kind of is already back in Paris by 1937. But one of my favourite works from this time was Portrait of Space. And this is this kind of black and white photograph of a desert with this net that covers it. And there's this tear in it. And I love it because not only is is, is it so surreal, but she's kind of 
climbing out for this escapism. I can tell that she's restless and she wants to get back to something. Am I right in thinking that? I think it's such an enigmatic image that so many people can take different things from it. And I, th- I think maybe it was a sca- as a kid um, going to her exhibitions, we just took it at face value. <laughs> we thought it was actually a picture of space. The sandy bit looks like maybe the surface of the moon. And we were like, yeah, I mean, she did so many other things. <laughs> oh my God, it's not surprising. Said, Why wouldn't she go to the moon too? And it's like, yeah, there's picture of the moon (laughs) but do you think she missed her old life in Paris when she was in Egypt oh definitely she really loved the adventure but what she didn't bank on in Egypt was being part of the expatriate community you know her husband was a respected businessman so there are appearances that you have to keep up and she's tried so hard and there's even letters where she's like feels like she's failing us and she still she really loves him But she just, after a while, it just gets to her. Aziz was an amazing guy. He's the one that brought her a ticket to go back to Paris because he could see that she wasn't happy. And I mean, had he known that the night that she arrived in Paris, she'd go to a fancy dress party and then meet my granddad. (laughs) I think he might might have thought twice about it. (laughs) But yeah, um, and it was then, it, it still took... My granddad, another two years of courting her. Because mm. after that, she still went back to Egypt. Oh, I see. Okay. So she wasn't in Paris for that whole time. No, no. It was just a visit to Paris in 1937. She was fancy dress ball, met my granddad. They had a couple of days together and then he had to come back to England. And then he invites her to come to Cornwall with him for a surrealist summer camp where there's like Man Ray, Leonora Carrington. Because I forget that she was surrounded by all these amazing people. I mean, like Leonora Carrington and Dorothea Tanning as well, as close friends, which is just the most remarkable thing. Yeah, Dorothea Tanning, she met after the war. Okay. Um, but they became really close. Mm. And actually the only letter that's ever made me cry is the letter that Dorothea Tanning wrote to Roland after she found out that Leah died. It's just so heartfelt and so touching. Because I know that um, Lee then went to go live in London. She lived in Hampstead with your grandfather. And, I mean, bearing in mind, this was, you know, at the outbreak of World War II. I mean, why did she want to go to London at this point? At kind of one of the most dangerous places in the world. I think she just wanted to be with Roland. Yeah. And she got to London in 1939. He finally convinces Lee to leave Aziz and to leave Egypt. And she comes here. Then they go off and have a little holiday with... Leonora Carrington and Max Ernst, and, and that's when war's declared. But she wrote to her brother, John, and we don't have very many letters to him. <laughs> <laughs> but she did write to him saying that she felt that all of her friends were here. Yeah. And that this is where her life was, so this is where she was going to stay. And do you think that she found something like war exciting? She eventually became a wartime casualty mm. in the fact that the adrenaline rush of, of getting the scoops and things like that was. But to start off with, it's hard to say. She yeah. never said, oh, I find it super exciting. I just feel like she's kind of in the right, not the right she's place. The, yeah. she, she's kind of in the right place in terms of being at the forefront of political times or surrealist times or, you know, but. The war was really interesting because, you know, so many people don't know about her as well as she was this incredible war correspondent for British Vogue. How did she then kind of get into that sort of line of field? I mean, this is like her 14th career by now. (laughs) 
Yeah, I know. Well, when she got to England, she was a foreigner and an American, so she wasn't allowed to work. So actually she just took pictures of what she found interesting and occupied herself. She um, volunteered for Vogue to start off with. And then she was the one that decided, it's not until the Americans joined the war, she decided that she was going to be their war correspondent. Because she'd had tried. She'd tried to be a war correspondent for the Brits, but they'd refused her so they didn't take women. She was a war correspondent from the American army. Okay. And then she attached herself to... British folk. Okay. What I love about her wartime images, and actually there's one that we had in the exhibition last year that's on the Downshire Hill, is how she kind of interwove this surrealist and fashion aesthetic with these wartime kind of masks. I mean, it's so inventive. But what I really love about her work as well is how she kind of put women at the foreground of her wartime images, whether that be kind of women's, women as officers, women on the kind of medical front, or even sort of thatching roofs or something. And it seems by taking these images that she really wished for their contribution and, and acknowledgement to be presented to the world and kind of live on forever. Am I right in thinking that she kind of wanted to tell the world that actually women were involved in wartime Yeah, things? and boy, did it take us ages for people to actually even hear about that. Dad and I when we were trying to present Lee to try and get shows of her work, we were like, and she was so interested in women during the war. Finally, this amazing curator, Hilary Roberts, from the Imperial War Museum, she was like, yeah, you're right, let's do it. And she's the first kind of real female curator that we'd work with. And she was like, yeah, you're right, you do it. And you know what? We're going to do 80% on the scene images. And this was like the first time ever we were able to show Lee's coverage of women during the war, We're not just working for the services, but also civilian women. And up until that point, only 20% of those images had ever been seen before. But they'd been here and we'd been trying to get people interested in them, but nobody would take a step and go for it. But it's amazing. It's almost as though you're completely exposed to this other side of war that you've never seen. Yeah. No, it's amazing. And the more you look at it, the more you realise that she is incredibly interested in what they're doing, how they're surviving, and she feels like she needs to record what's happening as well. From 1939 until halfway through 1944, she's in Britain and she's covering just civilian women. She's covering the ATS searchlight battery, the Wren, the Wrens, the Women's Land Army, and I mean, textile factory workers. Mm. And and those, that body of her work is incredibly interesting. Yeah. But then that work of her on the front line, was she really in the middle of everything that was going on? Not to start off with, because women war correspondents weren't allowed to cover combat. Even the American women war correspondents, accreditation was different to men. So um, women were expected to stay back in the safe zone um, because we were too weak. Okay. <laughs> But how did she get round that? Uh, she just violated the terms in the end. <laughs> Not a, Actually, the first time was by accident. The intelligence services had got the information wrong. And they sent her... T- her first article was in Normandy, and it was on the Normandy nurses, and it was in the safe zone. And um, it was about the casualty clearing hospitals and shipping the wounded back to England. And the next article was supposed to be the same. 
she was sent there and they told the battle was over. But when she got there, the, the battle was still going on. And Colonel von Aulocht was holed up in the citadel, the kind of old part of St. Marlow, which is a big fortified city. And she found herself the only journalist there because all the men had been sent off to known battle zones. So suddenly she had her own private war. <laughs> and so she was the only one there for, I think it was four days before other journalists turned up and she covered the whole of the siege and then the surrender of Colonel von Aulock. Incredible. But I also know that there was... I mean, obviously, you know, war is such a kind of destructive subject and I can imagine witnessing and actually being at the front line of all that kind of thing is extremely damaging, actually. And I know that she destroyed a lot of her photographs, actually, of Dachau because she didn't want anyone to actually see what she had seen. Why do you think that she destroyed all this work? Was it also herself saying that she never wanted to see it again? I don't know. I mean, the story that my dad's been told was about the destroying of the stuff was by an assistant that had worked with with her in, in Vogue studio who said that one day she came in and she found Lee cutting up her Dachau negatives and that she was like, this is too horrific and this is too awful. You know, I'm going to leave enough so that this is never forgotten, but this is just too much. And also kind of going back to that determination as well. I mean, there are these photographs of her actually sitting in Hitler's bath um, <laughs> with her kind of muddy boots on the kind of bath mat, you know, wrecking the place. She was so sort of daredevil in the sense that she would she could just do that. And it was also the same day that Hitler and his wife actually killed themselves. Yeah. Why did she want to go to his apartment? She'd just come from Dachau prison okay. camp. She and Dave Sherman, they'd kind of, they bumped into each other quite a lot because he was a war correspondent as well. And they actually happened to be at Dachau together. And they were at the liberation of Dachau prison camp, which is one of the death camps. So, you know, and um, this is when she wrote the article called Believe It in Vogue. In the American Vogue, they used a full-page image of the pictures of dead bodies piled up and they're kind of skeletal dead people that had starved to death mostly in the camps. And that's what she'd seen. And she writes in her manuscripts that if they, they'd heard that they were moving into Munich, taking the, the heart of the heart of Hitler and that she and Dave figured that if that's where they were going they were damn well going to make sure that they were at the front of it too she and Dave turned up and you know initially it was they you know they stank they'd been like uh, you know with with the allies as they pushed through Germany and the front of everything for ages you know they hadn't had their clothes off at all for like three weeks and Dave, it was when my dad asked Dave Sherman about it, he was like, yeah, you know, it, it, that was that was the reason initially why we had the bath. And then we would, you know, we were going, we were running the bath and then we thought, oh, this is a scoop. Yeah. The picture itself is actually, is slightly rigged because if you look closely next to her on the side of the bath is a photograph of Hitler. They'd taken that from his desk drawer and propped it up there to kind of tell the story, because otherwise it could be anyone's bathroom. Yeah. And then another thing you'll notice if you look at the picture is that is Lee's kind of modelling kind of commercial head ticking in. Because if you look at it, she's actually leaning forward slightly. Because if she was to sit up straight, you'd see her breasts. And that wouldn't be able to be published. She's there in his bathroom, in his private space, and she's de then defiles 
basically his bath man and his bath. And actually, my favourite picture from that series is not her in the bath. It's Dave. Because they take nearly a whole reel of her in the bath and then Dave gets in for the last two frames. And he, he's a little Jewish guy. And he looks so bloody uncomfortable yeah. sitting in that bath. And she tilts the camera so that it captures the shower above him. And they, having been to the prison camps, uh, they, they already knew about the showers that they'd gassed the prisoners in. And I think that also tells another story and is incredibly significant. Wow. Um, it's such a powerful thing. I mean, you know, she's really thinking about all these different aspects. But I'm wondering about how it affected her as a person. And, her, you know, like we talked at the beginning, your father, who was born two years after the war ended, never even knew about this whole career. So she clearly shut it out. What was it like returning to England and what, how did her life change? Well, she, for a start, she didn't come back when the other war correspondents came back. Dave Sherman, once Hitler had um, surrendered and the Nazis had gone out, he didn't take very long to come back and then go back to America. And the war correspondents didn't, but she kept going. And she writes to her editor and it's like she's pushing herself. She writes him that she says, everyone's going home with broken bodies and broken minds. And it's like she has to push herself to find something good that's come out of everything. You know, this brave new world that's been promised to them. Where the hell is it? And she keeps going to these places. But instead of finding that it's sorted everything out, she just finds that there's more corruption and there's more things going wrong. I mean, she even she questions the war much earlier on at the liberation of um, Luxembourg. She writes this article, and I think it's a really a really good analogy. She asks if liberation is enough, and she equates liberation to the fairy tale of Sleeping Beauty. So the Allied forces are the prince, and they charge through and cut back the thorns, and there is Sleeping Beauty, which is the liberated place, Luxembourg, for example. So they place the kiss, they free, you know, the prince frees Sleeping Beauty from her sleep. But the story ends there. And she says, but what happens next? You know, is the fridge stocked? Are there fresh eggs? You know, is everything nice and clean or is liberation enough? And she finds that basically it's not. She keeps going. There's the, her last article that she wrote for Vogue uh, is in Vienna. And she's gone and she's found that things are doing pretty well there. But uh, she goes to this children's hospital and the it's been taken. So there's this beautiful hospital. There's doctors, there's nurses, there's clean sheets. There's everything you could want for except any kind of drugs, any kind of medication. And the article starts, for, ne for an hour I watched a baby die. And that's the only one that Vogue never published because by now the war had finished. Everyone wanted to move on. Everyone wanted to forget this six years of hell. that they were. Europe was suffering from a massive trauma and people just wanted to shut it out and, ha and see something good. But the whole piece is actually quite harrowing to read. But she kind of did the same thing. I mean, this is the kind of last time. I mean, she's taking family photographs throughout her life, but this is the, is this the last time that she's really being a professional photographer? Well, yeah, I mean, 
so she comes she doesn't come back to England actually until February 1946 um, she gets stuck in France because her war correspondence pass has expired. She can't get home. When she does, her health has completely gone to shot because she's really just been, you know, putting herself through the ringer. So she really tried to adjust to being back in England. Vogue were amazing. They gave her like a heroine's welcome and they were really supportive. Like they tried to get her back into fashion photography. But when you've watched life-changing events you know a soldier die next to you or a guy with with such bad burns that you know he's not going to survive the next day um suddenly taking pictures of really nice handbags seems a little bit futile yeah and i think she really she really really struggled and i also think that the more we learn about ptsd post-traumatic stress disorder which we know which we're pretty certain she suffered from. The actual whole process of going, of taking the pictures, you know, they talk about in PTSD there's triggers and there's known triggers and there's unexpected triggers and there's something to do with that kind of photojournalist process that I think was a trigger for her because she struggled so hard. She really tried and Vogue tried too. They tried to give her a contract. She hadn't had a contract before. And we've got the contract because it tries to make her commit to writing a certain amount of articles a month and taking a certain amount of pictures. And the contract's just crossed out and it's got no written <laughs> across it. <laughs> and it's just brilliant. <laughs> and they, they try so hard, but in the end, they're a commercial magazine. Yeah. And if somebody is not constantly not delivering and constantly letting you down... Then and they're really struggling. Mm. I mean, what does she do to then channel all this? Because I know that you know she succumbs to alcoholism, and how does she kind of get out of this? The order of the day when you came back was that you put up and you shut up. Yeah, and everyone wanted to move on. So if you couldn't deal with it, you have a whiskey, and if you still couldn't deal with it, you have another one. And so it wasn't. She didn't become an alcoholic, but she did rely on alcohol. Yeah, to to cope, and. In the end, it didn't work. And I don't know how she managed to do it, but she did. She found a, a completely new focus, actually through Farley's. I mean, when they moved here, rationing was still on and suddenly they had their own vegetable garden. Her first recipes are like chutneys and preserves and that kind of thing. And then she finds it really interesting. So she gets the WI to come and show her, like she goes hardcore. She gets them to come and show her how to butcher a cow, how to smoke bacon. And like, you know, she, as with everything else, she doesn't do it, you know, oh, I'll just try this out. It's like hook, line and sinker. No, it kind of sounds like if she's doing something, she's going to she do did. it properly. I mean, she's still coping with demons in her head. So it fluxes. And she's, there's good days and there's bad days and there's days when she's more interested than others. But eventually... Cooking becomes her life and actually the last 20 years of her life she is being written up about as being a hostess with the mostess, this gourmet cook. For her 50th birthday she sent herself to Paris to study Cordon Bleu cooking for three months. And so two years ago you brought out kind of Lee Miller's Cyrilla's cookbook. How, what was that like? Was re, sort of reconnecting with her? It, it was painful <laughs> because I didn't really think I was a writer. It took 10 years 
She died a celebrity cook. And that's what she was famous for. Oh, my gosh. When she died, she was famous for that. And people had forgotten her as a photographer. And I think she used that as a great way of also escaping having to talk about her war traumas. People don't realise that sometimes they'll ask you a question and that will trigger you back there to the trauma. But if you are making cauliflower breasts or a hostess with the mostess, it's a, a far cry from talking about war experiences. And that's a, she still was passionate. She was still this amazingly intelligent, creative woman. And there's the kitchen. I love that in photography you can overcook your negatives and your pictures. <laughs> and it's just like, and, you know, there's the alchemy of getting your ingredients right and mixing your photographic chemicals too. So it kind of, when you start to think of it like that, it makes sense that that became her thing. How do you think that she would feel to kind of be remembered in this way, especially all the kind of super hard work that you and your father have done? I often wonder myself, like when I was finishing off writing the book about her food, um, I always, because I was here in the house, I just felt like she was looking over my shoulder and she was going, don't you dare say that. Going, oh, yes, that, that's okay. And it's kind of have this little, I love it because I do feel like here, they're around us. Um, and I hope she's happy. I hope she approves. <laughs> I think she would have been amazed. I mean, she's just become, like I said, this artistic giant. Yeah. And, you know, she really is this kind of, I mean, all my photographer friends, they completely look up to her and she's just become this icon of surrealism, photography, journalism as well. I think it's so incredible that a woman who was born in 1907 actually had this insane career. I think that's what keeps Dad and I going. Yeah is that like we've had some really dark times and it's still really tough to keep going as a family-run archive. But when somebody comes up to you and they say to you, I read Lee's story and this bit touched me and it made me make decisions in my life and I changed it or I became a photographer because of Lee or, or something like that, that's like, yeah, then I think she's really happy. <laughs> and it's certainly what keeps us going and what drives us to keep wanting to make sure that there is a Lee Miller legacy. So this is the, obviously the Great Woman Artist podcast. If Lee were around today, peering over your shoulder maybe, I don't know, <laughs> if you could say something to her, comment, or even just ask her something, what would it be? Oh, blimmin' heck. I've got so many questions. <laughs> I. <laughs> You've got one. I think I would say, I would ask her, so you kept your war work a secret. You kept the fact that you were raped a secret and that you were in infected with a venereal disease. What else? What else have you kept as a secret? Thank you so much, Amy, for coming on today's podcast. Thank you all so much for listening to the fifth episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Amy Buhasen on her grandmother, Lee Miller. Wow, I am completely blown away by the story of Lee's life, hearing how she was so ahead of her time and of course the diversity in her artwork that she made throughout her life. I urge you all to look up her incredible photography and also visit Farley's Farm, the former home of Lee Miller, home to her art collection and photographs that Amy and her father Anthony so beautifully managed. This podcast was sound edited by the excellent Ellie Clifford and if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I'd be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel.
Just this past October, our wonderful sponsor, the Affordable Art Fair, celebrated their 20th anniversary in style, back where it all began in Battersea Park in London. And wow, what a selection of artworks they had on view, from prints, paintings, sculptures and ceramics, and a lot of women, I may add. If you missed out on this year's edition, or like me, are still dreaming about that perfect artwork that got away, then do not worry. Head online to browse the same hand-picked selection of emerging and established living artists as you'd find at the fair. Discover the joy of collecting art on affordableartfair.com and thank you so much to our sponsor, the Affordable Art Fair, for making this podcast possible.